It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 18th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The average household had disposable income of €48,476 last year, giving families... 5% more to spend than they'd have had the previous year. This is according to the latest Income and Living Conditions report published by the CSO yesterday. There is more progress according to this report as fewer people were forced into deprivation. The rate of the amount of people who could not afford two indicators such as keeping the heat on or keeping the lights on or buying presents for loved ones at Christmas fell from 21% of the population to 18.8%. There is However, much to be concerned about that figure of almost 19% of people in enforced deprivation to start with. A fifth of children live below the poverty line. One in eight of us are at risk of poverty, while the actual level of poverty now is worse than it was in 2008 at the height of the recession. Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland, joins us to talk about these statistics now. And the figures are pretty startling, to say the least, when you look at the amount of people who are said to be living in poverty in this country, some 760,000 people, 230,000 of those are children. And I take it that as we approach Christmas, they're looking forward to to a Christmas out of a Charles Dickens novel. I think that's the actual issue, a tale of two cities, as as, uh, Dickens would have said, a two-tier society, I think, as we would say. There's some very interesting information in this. There's some very good news. Uh, the fact that the incomes are going up and so on, and I think that's very welcome. Uh, but despite what the other message that it carries, though, is that despite the growing economy, despite the growth and in the income of households that you highlighted there, despite the fact that there's been growing unemployment and reduced unemployment, despite all of that, the fact remains that there's three quarters of a million people, just over three quarters of a million people, living in poverty. As you said, 230,000 of those are children. And interestingly enough, 109,000 of them actually have a job. But the money that they're earning in the job doesn't get them above the poverty line because they're basically in precarious employment or part-time employment, even though they want full-time and so on. Mm. So, the so-called not, working poor. 
the, the working poor precisely. So mm. the idea that in some way or other, if you get up in the morning and uh, and you have a job, you're, you're, you're hunky dory, that actually is not the case. There's quite a substantial number of people who are not in that space, and not alone that. Uh, given the, the people who are listening to this program, Michael, mm. it allows me like. Poverty in rural Ireland is 14% higher than it is in urban Ireland. But how is it so? I mean, we have a very high impression of ourselves. We see ourselves as a fair, just nation and charitable people. We have a great tradition of helping the poor around the world over many generations as Irish people. And it seems as though there's little doubt that we are getting richer. As a country, we are richer, but there are more people who are falling into poverty. So it follows that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. How is that? Well, I think the, the main reason that things aren't working the way they ought to and most the way most people, as you say, would want it to be where there'd be no poverty in Ireland, the reason that's happening is that basically government policy isn't focused on eliminating poverty. Government po- policy seems to accept the fact that it's okay to have three quarters of a million people in poverty. Now, I'll give you an example. Mm. I go, to, go to the one that people might think is the toughest to resolve, which is the working poor issue. The fact of the matter is that government has a mechanism if it used it. In other words, it, it would have to activate it. And that is uh, to let people benefit who have a job, benefit from the full value of the tax credits they're entitled to. Mm. At the moment, because of the fact that their income is low and therefore they're paying less tax than maybe if they had, a full, uh, if, if they had more money, uh, people don't, some people, a lot of people, with, uh, of the, that 109,000 I'm talking about, uh, who are the working poor, many of those do not actually uh, do not have an income big enough to benefit from the full value of the tax credits. The result is that when budget the budget comes around or whatever, government can't make any impact on their particular uh, situation unless they make those ta- what they call make those tax credits refundable. In other words, change the rules so that people can benefit from the full value of those tax credits. It would in effect mean that people would get the money back at the end of the year in a payment, like they would get a refund, uh, a, like they'd get it mm. under other headings. But you didn't wake, revenue. You didn't wake up this morning uh, and come up with this idea. I think I've been hearing you make that suggestion. <laughs> For about twenty years, that is so true, Michael. And like, I suppose at one level, we just keep going on about mm. you know. I mean, I've been banging on about about the things that government needs to do, but like, it is very obvious when you look at these numbers uh, that uh, there are two Irelands, that there is a deep uh, gap in Ireland, uh, and as you said, like Dickens would be writing about it um, if he if he were around, and. Uh, the government needs to take the kinds of actions that are required. And the first thing they need to do is decide that they'll honour that uh, that uh, sustainable development goal, uh, number one, that they signed off on at the United Nations uh, mm. in 2015, which is zero poverty by 2030. Now, if they set themselves that target of zero poverty, and that is doable, then you have to do a number of things to do that. For example, you, you have to stop discriminating against young people. At the moment, there's a discrimination against young people because if you're under 26, you're not entitled to the full uh, social welfare rate. Mm. For example, there's an assumption that you don't need it or whatever. They need to benchmark social welfare, take it out of the political arena altogether, and bench it, but benchmark it at a, an adequate level. And they need to uh, adopt the living wage. You know, the way the minimum wage is there. Mm. And in fairness, there's been improvements in the, in the minimum wage. But the minimum wage is almost two euro an hour below what is a living wage, which is what's required uh, to be able to get people out of poverty and live with some dignity. And uh, it's not an excessive amount, but uh, 
and, and some companies are actually paying it now, uh, and that's that's very welcome. But they're the kinds of things that uh, government needs to look at. Or, or else bring down the cost of living, because you could argue that either way, uh, and you could suggest as well that if you bring up the minimum wage to the living wage level, that you'll increase the cost of living and it'll have no real effect for people. But what we do know is that it is unaffordable uh, regardless of what that level is for so many people. And we know that there's 4,000 children, just under 4,000 children, officially recorded as homeless in this country. Uh, and this is meant to be the most wonderful time of uh, the year for everybody, but the children of the world over especially. Uh, and, of course, they're all looking forward to Santa Claus coming. So when people talk about the homeless children in this country, they're wondering if Santa will need help to find where they are because they don't have a, a home. Uh, and when we talk about 230,000 children who are below the poverty line, a fifth of children who are below the poverty line. Is Santa going to need help uh, to make sure that their Christmas is special? And I, I think the, the answer is obviously yes, that they have, there has to be support in that space. And I mean, a lot of organizations are doing a lot of work. The Vincent de Paul uh, do a huge amount of work and they pay out millions in, in support to uh, uh, families in that situation. Likewise, uh, uh, endless uh, groups like, like uh, the Capuchins and Brother Kevin, you know, mm. there's a huge amount of work that gets done and is being done. An awful lot of it quietly at Christmas by different organizations and so on. But the, the bottom line that we need to face up to is that Ireland is one of the richest countries in the world. We should not have to be depending on charity. We should. No, char- I'm not den- denigrating charity at all. I'm all in favour of it. It's good. But like, it is not a good thing that we as a country are depending mm. on charities. No, I'm, not, I'm not particularly fond of charity at all. I, I think quite often the people who can't afford to give to charity are the ones who do actually donate. That is, that is actually true, because Irish people generally are very, very generous. But the, the bottom line in this is there's a challenge to government. And mm. the, government, the challenge to government is, look, you're one of the richest countries in the world. There's enough income here to make everybody uh, have a good life. There's enough income here to reach zero poverty in the next five years. And that's one of the things I'd be saying, too, as, as we, you know, maybe we, we don't have a general election coming up for 12 months now that uh, the, the parties have agreed their, 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 their extension of their value. agreement. But, mm-hmm. but the bottom line, though, the, there will be uh, an agreement uh, or a new election and, uh, and a new government uh, within a, a, a relatively short time. Mm. They should set themselves a target, and that target would be zero poverty in five years. So if they're going to be in, in, in office for five years as a government, one of the commitments, zero poverty, and then say, right, what's required? Let's put the refundable tax credits in place. Mm. Let's put a, um, introduce a cost of disability payment for people with disabilities because they have an actual uh, additional cost, no matter what their yeah. income level is. And let's do, let's deal with let's benchmark social welfare. Let's uh, move to the living wage over mm. a period of time. But that is let's an impossible target, is it not? Uh, and if you're unrealistic in the targets uh, that you set, well, then uh, it's uh, possible uh, that people feel that you're uh, uh, racing a. Uh, you're, yeah. you're, you're fighting a losing battle uh, but I mean you're always going to have people with addiction problems and mental health problems okay. and as a result they'll be in poverty okay. okay and I mean there's an acceptance that there will be people at the very bottom who have a, issues of serious proportions and there should be good services for those I'm not, I'm not kind of arguing that case but, but I'm, I, I'm arguing the case of course that they have good services but we, we, there should be services across, good services for everybody in reality but it is possible to reach zero poverty like to, if you take the, the, the sort of marginal group 
of like people with addiction and so on. That, 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 and that's a very small number in the overall scheme of things. Remember, we have four and a half million people plus in mm. the in the country. Uh, like we should be able to get to a point where this particular number uh, uh, of uh, and the percentage that's in poverty of 15.8% yesterday as counted by uh, the CSO, Central Statistics Office, uh, that should be down to below 1%. There should be no reason why that can't be done. Mm. It's simply a matter of political will, putting in place the decisions and the actions uh, that are required uh, to, to sort of get people out of the current situation they're in and change Ireland Build a society that isn't a two-tier society. Build a society that isn't characterised by mm. going back to Dickens and his tale of two cities. Well, that's the thing, the tale of two cities, because how is it, if you're right in suggesting that this is one of the richest countries in the world, more than 15% of people are in poverty? That's, that's absolutely the ultimate question. And like, I know myself, we've discussed it here, mm. I, I have questions uh, about how you know, Ireland's income is measured and so on. But the reality is, no matter how you measure us, uh, we're, a, we're a wealthy country and we have improved dramatically. Like the resources in the country were far better off. This particular study yesterday shows exactly the same thing. It shows an increase in, the, in families' disposable income and so on. And that's, that's all very welcome. It's very, very good. I'm not uh, knocking that at all. But the problem is we're, we're working on a model, it seems to me, that prioritizes economic growth. And it basically says, let's get the economy to grow and everything else will follow. The problem is everything else doesn't follow. And we're left with a situation where substantial numbers of people, as we see, are, le- are, are losing out. 760,000 people in the country, over three quarters of a million, not having enough income to live life with dignity. Now, that's really, really problematic in one of the richest countries in the world. It's a, at the end of the day, it's not an accident and it's not inevitable. It's basically a question of decisions and people making decisions, the government making decisions uh, that move us in the right direction. And the challenge there is not to be in the space that, that they're in at the moment, uh, where they basically seem to be accepting this kind of number without any great effort, and they were praising themselves yesterday about the good news in this, but they were ignoring the bad news in it. All right, and of course, uh, whilst uh, you have all of these people who are living in poverty, some are poorer than others, uh, you have 760,000 people, 230,000 of them who are children who are in poverty uh, but I, I take it that whilst that means uh, that these people can't afford these indicators as uh, they uh, refer to them like heating or uh, a warm meal or a heavy overcoat or whatever the thing is yeah. uh, that there's many who can't afford any of the indicators. That is absolutely true and there's quite a substantial number who can't, there's about 13 or 14 indicators in there that, and you have to qualify, you have to be uh, kind of short on number of them to qualify to be in that deprivation number that they're mm-hmm. talking that they have out there, and uh, like there's nine hundred and ten thousand people uh, experiencing deprivation in one form or another. They don't have those uh, a number of those um, indicators that they have that are listed there uh, that you that you call out, and some others like like um, having uh, money to be able to buy presents for family and friends, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. 
So the result is that they're, they are basically deprived of essentials. Some of them are not necessarily living in poverty. Their income is high enough, uh, but they don't have kind of what would be described as a, have, have the essentials of being able to live life with some dignity that people would expect. And I think that we need to face up to the fact mm. that, that um, poverty is a reality in Ireland. And so is deprivation. On the poverty side, people don't have enough income to live life with dignity. On the deprivation side, they don't have some of the basics um, that uh, are taken as given, such as uh, enough to be able to have have a hot meal every second day and, you know, have a a, a good overcoat to be able to wear when the weather gets bad, like it is now, and so on. Okay? Those kinds of issues. And there's a... when you, when we wind up in a situation with over 900,000 people experiencing deprivation or something uh, of, of, of some kind or other in a country that is basically uh, one of the richest countries in the world, uh, there is, we need to stop and ask ourselves, like, what are we doing wrong? What is it? that we're doing are not doing as the case may be. Well, bad and, all, bad and all as it is, uh, you uh, talk about social welfare and how welfare supplements people to a point that uh, it keeps their head uh, above Water. the breadline. Uh, and uh, that's a good thing, though, is it not? And that's one of the things that we're doing. That's uh, a societal distribution of wealth. That's right. And we like we have one of the biggest, uh, if you like, payouts on that side because of the fact that our uh, initial uh, income is so low. Like, if we didn't have the welfare system, our poverty rate would be up in the 40%, you know? And, like, that would be one of the highest uh, in, in the European Union. But because of the way we've structured ourselves, so what we've done is we put a lot of effort and a lot of money uh, into paying welfare of one kind or another. Enough, so that is old-age pensions and mm. child benefits and things of that nature that we pay. But the reality in that is that... Uh, we shouldn't have to be relying so much on a welfare system to deliver this. We should, in effect, have have uh, people's access to to uh, the kinds of levels of income that they have through their initial income. Now, that raises issues around low-paid jobs, mm-hmm. around uh, the, the working poor that we talked about. Yeah. But more than that, an awful lot of people have jobs, but they're not hugely... They're, they're not very bi- uh, high-paying jobs, if mm. you like. And they're relying on family income supplement or something like that on top of uh, their wages. Precisely, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the welfare system helps them in that way, or the tax system helps them in one way or another. And I think we, we need to do, like, for example, as I mentioned earlier, to, to make tax credits refundable, to make the full value of the tax credit, of the main tax credits that they get, available to everybody, so that everybody would benefit over the 12 months of the year uh, they'd benefit from the, the full value of the tax credits they're entitled to. Uh, the way we would do it is we would pay the balance at the end of the year, and that would be a good time uh, for people as well, because after Christmas and when people hit New Year uh, and uh, past the end of the year, uh, things do tend to be exceptionally tight. That might be a bad time at all uh, to be able to get a small little, because there isn't a huge amount of money that they'd be entitled to uh, by getting the balance of their tax credits that okay. they benefit from. That could be a little change that was brought in that would make a huge difference to the 109,000 who are the working poor and their families, the households they live in and so on.
All right. The tale of two cities, as you say. Thank you indeed uh, for telling us. Uh, to be here as always. And thank you for joining us as always. Father Sean Haley, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to Navin and uh, the discovery of a pipe bomb on Bruce Hill in uh, the early hours of yesterday morning. Park Fitzsimons is a local Fianna Fáil councillor and on the line. Uh, and you were in the vicinity uh, when this uh, device was discovered, I understand it, Paul. Uh, yes, Michael, how are you? Um, yeah, actually, I was on my uh, way into work that morning and uh, the Bruce House was closed off. I had to take a different route and I didn't really know what was going on as such. And only later on, um, I went into work and carried on and we kind of were made aware of what exactly the situation was. I believe mm. there was a van on, on the street there from the early hours. And uh, in fairness to the guards, they... Um, obviously took it away or made it safe and, and then opened up the streets at around half eight that morning. Okay, well, uh, I take it a, a number of residents uh, became acutely aware of what was going on and were quite anxious about what was going on when they were asked to leave their houses. Yeah, some uh, residents were evacuated and I, I know of other residents actually who kind of slept through it and poked their head out the window at some stage and were told that everything had been sorted. Mm. Uh, I, I talked to a man yesterday who was out walking his dog actually in the early hours and um, again the street was closed off at that stage. So like for people who live in the area, for residents and uh, motorists, uh, people going to work that morning, even my own parents and brother live uh, within 200 yards of the um, of, of Bruce Hill, you know, or actually even less. So for anybody like the fear and terror that that strikes into the community, you know, it, it, it's it's terrible. Mm. You know, people are very, very scared, and you know, there was talk of the town yesterday, and, and more or less, what's the next step, or where does it all go? Mm. And what was the motivation for somebody putting one of these things together? Apparently, they're fairly easy to put together, and that you can get instructions for them on the internet. And the equipment uh, is uh, sort of household products uh, that anybody could uh, find handily enough. Uh, but the fact that somebody would set out to do this, they obviously have destruction on their mind. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's very hard to get inside the mind of somebody who's capable of this, really, Michael, you know. Um, mm. And I don't know what it's in relation to, and uh, I don't know of anything that in particular is going on on that particular street. Like, there's no issues, really, on Bruce Hill as such, or even in the town, if they say the town is very peaceful uh, for the most part. So mm. I don't even know, is it related to or, you know, other towns or areas or where it might have been destined for, but whatever it was destined for, you know, it's um, there's no regard for human safety and, and these people just really don't care about other people who live around them or who are in the streets or who it might affect, you know, it's, mm. it's a different mindset altogether. Well, I'm sure people listening to you will hope that you're right uh, in your own uh, perception of this uh, that uh, there isn't uh, any particular feud that is taking place in the town that would lead to this type of behaviour because uh, I'm sure uh, people are acutely aware of their neighbours in Drogheda and that this type of thing is becoming somewhat commonplace and uh, that there is this ongoing risk to life and limb uh, and that people are on standby and quite often these things are at the centre of a feud where it's, whether it's in Navin or elsewhere quite often uh, at uh, the centre of uh, a, a drugs feud a feud between drugs, gangs, whether it's in Navin or somewhere else, uh, and there is plenty of reason to be concerned. Yeah, there is. I, I agree with you there. Um, and, um, you know, as far as I know, there's nothing going on in Navin, thank God, you know, mm-hmm. and in fairness to the guard, you have to say, like, crime is down in the area, you know, um, there's a good presence on the street, and again, with what happened on, on Monday morning there, 
the, the Gardaí obviously had maybe had the, the van under surveillance as such, you know, and how they dealt with it, you know, and, and how they dealt with uh, the safety issue and dealing with the van in question, um, I have to say, you know, I take my hat off to them and uh, applaud the work that they're doing to keep Navin in, in, in the safe place that it is. And uh, it was at around 20 past three in the morning uh, that the army team say they arrived at, at uh, the scene. Uh, so uh, it really would have been a, a wake up call for people. Have you been speaking to any of the residents uh, who got a, a knock on the door and were asked to move out? Uh, I didn't speak to any directly, but I. I I spoke. I, I heard of people who were woken up um, and uh, left the area, uh, were asked to leave the area. Others who kind of slept through it, to be honest, and mm-hmm. only later kind of were made aware of it. Uh, and as I say, came out to the window or the door, saw what was going on. But at that stage, things had been had been sorted out. Uh, and again, I spoke with a man who was out just walking his dog, and he was stopped at the top of the street, and that was around half mm. two. Um, so, and I imagine even people who might have been, you know, that, that was Sunday night, people might have been coming home from clubs even at that stage, you know. Uh, so, it wasn't just residents, like, uh, you know, it would have affected quite a lot of people and uh, who might have just been walking in the vicinity, etc., right. you know, and what might have happened, uh, you know, is it's scary to think of what might have happened. Indeed. Where, where, where do you go, though, at that hour of the morning if somebody knocks on your door and asks you to leave? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, I think you get out there as quick as you can anyway, and... Uh, stay warm but um, yeah exactly I, I don't know and uh, like we're lucky that this is a, obviously a very rare thing that happens to us it would have been yeah. quite common I suppose mm-hmm. in, in, in the north years ago you know and you'd have to feel for those people that's affected over the course of years you know and even again people might be in Drogheda and uh, the worry that they have to go through and, and other areas but mm-hmm. um, listen for the most part Navin is we're lucky here and uh, again the guards dealt with it very well and thank God nobody was hurt and you know we're well, here to live another day, as you say. Well, that's it. And, uh, of course, uh, like all these things, there's the disruption uh, to the everyday lives of uh, people. Uh, there's the draw on the security forces. And, of course, there's the danger that is posed uh, by one of these devices being in the vicinity. But we leave it there for the moment, Parag. And thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Uh, that's uh, Fianna Fáil Councillor Parag Fitzsimons. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the violent uh, attack on uh, that house in Falsk near Strokestown, County Roscommon, which saw 20 men arrive in the dark of night armed with baseball bats after cordoning off roads with bales of hay to attack security guards, hospitalising eight of them, uh, three of them, uh, injuring eight of them, hospitalising three of them and uh, much destruction, including uh, the burning of a vehicle uh, the Taoiseach said yesterday, I don't think anyone likes seeing people being evicted or losing the property they held, particularly in the run-up to Christmas. And this follows on from the eviction that we spoke about at that house last Tuesday. But it, it was done on the basis of a court order, the Taoiseach said, and he can only assume that the judge heard all sides of the story and made the decision that he did. But leaving that aside, I think all of us have to condemn unreservedly the use of violence in this instance. We're joined by David Hall, who's uh, director of uh, the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation. And uh, I'm sure you'd echo what the Taoiseach had to say there in condemning the violence, David. Yeah, both sets of violence. It's important to remember that not only did 20 uh, people um, carry out uh, unacceptable violence on Sunday morning, but we must go back to last Tuesday when the same thing happened during the eviction. And I think, it's, you know, two wrongs do not make a right. I'm not saying two wrongs make a right, but I think we just need to not have amnesia and recall that third parties dressed in black um, with cameras and all sorts of other par- paraphernalia around them, uh, escorted by Gardaí. And on that occasion, the Gardaí blocked the roads, let's be very clear, while this uh, private army 
on behalf of allegedly KBC enforcing a court order came in where there were some supporters and indeed the family involved and threw them off the property and in a very aggressive mm. way by way. It was terrible to watch and uh, we discussed it on the programme yesterday uh, there's no doubt about it it, it was terrible to watch you could see uh, people in headlocks and being forcibly removed off uh, the grounds of uh, the premises uh, but uh, what do you do if somebody is being evicted and they don't want to leave? Well in the first instance you don't do it a week, two weeks before Christmas um, to do so is is a despicable act that can only be uh, condemned by all by all parties uh, in relation to that. You know, the other thing, Michael, we've spoken about this before, is um, many people are in difficulty and many people in business are in difficulty. They don't tend to just have one debt. And indeed, there's a natural assumption that somebody in business has financial wherewithal and competence. And some say they should have, but not everybody has. Not everybody has the wherewithal and competence and competence to deal with a lending institution. Mm. And sometimes when people are under immense pressure from many quarters, and they tend to do very little. And as I say, I don't know the circumstances in this case. I am on the way mm. to, to Roscommon to meet the family this morning um, as I'm speaking to you. But as I say, you know, we have to understand that a couple of weeks before Christmas, and my understanding is there are a number of uh, siblings in the house who had no party to the debt involved, and this was their home. And indeed, if they were tenants, they would have been protected by different rights. So it raises a number of questions. It raises a private army coming in to carry out a court order, which I've always maintained should be done by the Gardaí. I welcome Charlie Flanagan's interdepartmental group he gathered yesterday or began yesterday to review uh, unlicensed security firms from other jurisdictions affecting court orders in, in, in the Republic. Mm, and, and they were being uh, observed by the Gardaí, as you said yourself. And that's, that's, the... that's even more worrying. And I actually, you know, I, I condemned the Gardaí's behaviour on that day by standing around watching people being assaulted. And, uh, you know, I, I put, it to this, put this to you, Michael. Do you think for one minute that I told a guard having committed a criminal act or done something that I was standing inside private property, that it was private property, do you think he'd say, OK, I can't touch you? Do you think he'd leave me alone? That's what they did. Well, They were called upon to intervene. They asked... Well, I've often, I've, often seen, I've often seen people forcibly removed from nightclubs. Yeah, but uh, but in but the Gardaí. I mean, that's that's what security firms do, isn't it? They do, uh, but they they do so in a in a tra- in a trained and licensed manner, where their names and identity are visible to all concerned. They behave in an orderly manner. They're trained. They're regulated. Mm. They're licensed. They display their licenses on their on their. Um, Mm. Uniform or under. No, I mean, as I say, it was terrible to watch it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The Gardaí were asked. Mm. The, the three members of the Gardaí were standing outside the gate watching this. Mm. Representatives of, of the Irish state who were Gardaí to protect the public mm. were watching people being assaulted. There was a man corralled into the corner um, against well, the bush. And another man. Assaulted uh, or forcibly removed when they re- re- refused to leave? The Gardaí should have then removed them. I'm not saying that a court mm. order can be ignored. Yeah, I'm saying the manner in which it was done. Yeah, and this is not this is not easy. It it really was terrible to watch, and I, I can't emphasise that enough. But and, and no, and as no, the Taoiseach that, said, and, there's and, that's what the courts are for, and the judge would have heard all sides in this and granted the court order. Yeah, correct. But the Taoiseach's job and the minister's job is to ensure that this is done in a in a in a, in a most humane way as humanly possible, and allowing third party armies come from another jurisdiction. Um, with no identification mm. and no licensing is not the way to do it. So it's easy to speak, um, it's easy to talk, as, as Taoiseach is well able to do mm. and well used to do and spin such circumstances. But ultimately, the Minister for Finance, the banks and the central bank have um, failed to deal with people in long-term arrears and difficulties involving farms 
and, and I hope the Vulture Funds are watching and welcome to rural Ireland because I think they'll be met with similar fate when it comes to their actions over the coming years. Well, you'd hope not. No, I think, you know, there needs to be an understanding. Oh, no, hold on. I mean, you're not serious. I mean, the Irish yeah. Independent is reporting this morning that this was uh, the continuity IRA or the real IRA or something of uh, that sort. No, but when you don't when you don't address a problem properly, and I've already... But what was the problem here? What was the problem here that somebody was being evicted because uh, they hadn't paid their mortgage or they were in debt over some other business transaction, which uh, I think some of the reports are alluding to, uh, and somebody who has a, a history of debts, uh, a tax defaulter that uh, made a settlement of €429,501 some years ago with the Revenue Commissioners. Uh, uh, is that what's at issue here, or, or is it that one of the security guards told somebody who was filming this that they were British? There's a number of issues. Number one, I'm not going to, nor will I ever, uh, abandon people who are under difficulty or under pressure, irrespective of any campaign from any third parties to try and diminish or demonise those people in public. That's not my function. My function is to offer help where I can, and no one is perfect, and many people act and behave in different ways under pressure. So I'm not going to apologise for anyone's behaviour because they don't know the true set of circumstances, but I most certainly am not going to dismiss someone out of hand because they're under pressure, or indeed they have left death behind them, which I'm mm. not condoning, but at the same time I'm not going to leave someone when they're under pressure or, or need some help uh, just because uh, someone has decided to disclose their full financial details publicly. But you can't, you can't support a, 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 a gang, whether it's dissident Republicans or anyone else, a, a gang of fellows arriving with, bal- with balaclavas and baseball bats. No, but I also don't, and I already answered that at the outset, Michael. Well, you, 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 you've just set out a, a warning there to the vulture funds I, that, that I, this I, is what they can expect. No, no, I'm not, I'm telling you categorically that there's nothing sure in the world than more of this ahead. Not because I'm encouraging it or looking for it. I'm saying to you categorically, this tsunami and the battle has only begun. This is a clear marker um, to everybody. Uh, if you're going to have armies and you referring to Sunday morning and I don't know why you keep forgetting Tuesday Tuesday had 20 people dressed in black not from a movie but overseas persons who arrived um, in provocative attire in a provocative manner supervised by Angela Shia Khan mm. to remove a family I support the law I support court order who came on foot of a court order whose right. faces were visible uh, and were under the no supervision one, of uh, escort, escorted if you like by the guard escorted by the guard but no unfortunately no action I think there's a major part of this missing and I think this would have been a lot easier uh, handled and a lot easier dealt with had a guardie come to effect a court order which mm. I believe is the correct course of action and maybe that will be the result of this and undoubtedly that would be a good thing it was a terrible thing to watch but it does not it does not justify gangs uh, coming together and acting this way in the future does it no and I don't I don't know what interview you're conducting because I've already answered that question what I'm saying to you is if you've eight years of abandoning people under pressure and, and in debt and banks lying to the central bank and the issuing statements and no disrespect to you but the media commentators taking what the banks have said as being gospel without any banks have you ever interviewed a representative of the bank? Uh, no. No, that's my point. Mm. No representative from the banks have come out. Everybody has just rehashed and rehashed mm. utter lies that the banks have done and if you continually do that continue to demonise people by calling them strategic defaulters by calling people non-engagers, uncooperative. When you do such things, when you have an imbalance of power that exists between banks and assume people have the literacy and the competency Mm. to take on large organisations, 
large organisations are back to making vast profits, having us help them. And then you try and rock up with 20 people dressed in black in rural Ireland or anywhere else to try and take back their house, you're going to be met with difficulty. Am I encouraging the difficulty? No, but I'm stating a fact that I believe is going to happen over the coming years. Okay, but if I don't pay my mortgage, what can I expect? No, and I agree, I'm not saying there should not be repossessions. What I'm saying, and mm. I'm not ex- exclude this case because I don't know the circumstances of this case. What I'm saying is there should not be unreasonable repossessions, Michael. Mm. And, and I'm saying that respectfully for those who are tax-compliant uh, people who are paying their taxes and who are functioning in life and fortunate enough to be able to pay the mortgage. Those people, when they take a step back and actually look at this in the raw light of day, need to understand that it's in their best interest this is dealt with in a humane, but also in a fiscally responsible manner. Mm. That a house, I don't know if you saw the house, the house is hardly mm. Gorse Hill. No. And if you've got to put three people on the side of the road um, and the cost to the state in relation to managing those people or other people around the country, there might be a better way. And mm. people have dismissed the NAMA for the people in the past. But a NAMA-type organisation, that somebody loses ownership of the home. I'm not saying anyone gets a free house. I'm saying, fiscally speaking, if you look at the consequences with 10,000 people in yeah. emergency accommodation and 100,000 people on the social housing list, this is lunacy doing it this way. Lunacy. Okay, well, h- hardly Gorse Hill, but more like a, a shed in a war zone at the moment uh, because of uh, the destruction uh, that followed on from that uh, attack. The house itself has been destroyed destroyed to a, a large degree. Uh, and uh, apparently you, some you, of the family have moved back in. Yeah, and can I say to you as well, you mentioned with the house being destroyed. You know, as part of this attack on Sunday morning, um, the you know the the family themselves have lost out in the sense the mm. house was damaged. Yeah. This wasn't an attack just on the security people and on the the unfortunate dog, which was a mm. horrific set of circumstances, mm. and and the property. Also, the house was damaged in this, um, which is, is is equally distressing for everyone concerned. So some people you know might have thought originally this was a, some some action on behalf of the owners, which it might have been, mm. but ultimately. They haven't exactly done themselves any great favours given that the house now is destroyed. All right. We'll leave it there, David. Thanks very much uh, for joining us uh, this morning. David Hall is uh, the director of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Cairns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots in response to your interview with Sean Healy and also in relation to the eviction in Roscommon. Uh, Gráinne from Drogheda says, despite the economy supposedly on the up, it's worrying the amount of people who are still on the poverty line. It proves, again, that there's one part of society who is not benefiting from the upturn and Gráinne feels that that needs to be addressed. Tom from Navin says that his biggest disappointment of this government, and he thinks the government has been performing well, but his biggest disappointment has been the government's failure as he sees it to tackle the homeless crisis. He feels they're running around like headless chickens a lot of the time, can't seem to get to grips with the problems and need to really do something about it in the year ahead. All right. Well, there is a, a year ahead uh, with uh, undoubtedly new plans, as we've been hearing, because the government is uh, set to introduce uh, a number of new measures. There's to be a rent register, which uh, they say they hope will control uh, the increase in rents. And uh, if people breach uh, these rent pressure zone caps, 
uh, they'll be fined and up to €30,000 and face a, a criminal record. There are some of uh, the new measures that the government is talking about introducing. We'll hear more about that on the programme tomorrow when Minister Damien English will be with us and explain that whilst it might look as though the government is running around like headless chickens, uh, they are doing everything possible. But no matter how much you do, it takes time to make the achievements that the government feels it will actually make, but in time. We had a phone call from a female listener, didn't want to give her name, from the Drogheda area. And she says, I'm listening to your guest, Father Sean Healy. He's very well spoken. But I have to say, um, I would be very disheartened with the government. We lost both of our jobs in the recession. We had to restructure our mortgage. It was tough to get the mortgage restructured and while we waited for a couple of months, the arrears built up, but we get, we did get it restructured and we've been paying away our mortgage just to find out in the middle of Christmas, just when it's time to concentrate on family, comes a letter in our door to say that the mortgage has been given to a vulture fund. You can't blame people for being so disheartened with the government when this happens. We did everything by the book, Michael. We had paid 80000 off on our mortgage by the time we got into difficulty and we still continued to pay what was required of us. The listener says that we scrimped and scraped to make sure that we paid what we had to. And now we get this letter through the door. I'm very afraid because you don't know who you're dealing with now. You don't know who these people are in the Vulture Fund. We don't know what they can do to our property. My husband leaves for work at 4.30am every morning. We've worked hard all our lives and this is what we've been left with. Okay, well, hopefully uh, it will make no difference. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it will make uh, uh, the type of difference that you'd be worried about, about uh, losing uh, your property uh, because if uh, you are uh, paying uh, back your mortgage, uh, your rights uh, should not change despite uh, the uh, financial institution uh, who owns the loan changing for that matter. Joan was in touch to say, I hear your guest talking about charities. What annoys me about charities is the big wages that CEOs are paid Mm. of the charities. There should be a cap on that. I don't mind a good wage being paid. Everybody is entitled to a good wage. And I feel, though, that anything over 80,000 is too much. Okay, well, I I think a lot of people uh, do have a a significant problem with that. And I suppose uh, that's up to you and to all of us uh, to consider when we decide to make a donation to charity. How much goes to the big wages? How much goes to administration? How much goes uh, to promotion and letters that arrive in your letterbox for years after just giving maybe a fiver to one of the charities and they continuously write to you and all of that costs money? Paddy from Cals was also listening in to Sean Healy and says he's at the usual crack, Michael. Mm. Eliminate poverty. You never will, Mm. says Mm. Paddy. Mm. No matter how much people get, Mm. a lot of people aren't able to manage their money, don't uh, manage their money Mm. properly. Yeah, well, Sean Uh, Healy did concede that. I mean, I think I did put that point to him. And Paddy Mm. thinks that people are getting enough money from the state to live on. Uh, but they need to live within their means. There are a lot of people who don't want to work in this country, Michael. They won't get up in the morning. So why should we give it to them? Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure there are some, but I'm not sure it's a lot. 
On then the uh, eviction in Roscommon, uh, Noel phoned in to say, sickened me to see the way these people were treated like animals. This is not what anybody in the country wants to see. Was every avenue explored to try and come up with a financial deal? But no matter what, they should not have been treated this way, he feels. Mm. Uh, Another listener, obviously we have to pay our debts. Mm. but compassion is needed. This was a few weeks before Christmas. Nobody knows the real circumstances, but having heavy-handed gangs turf people out of their homes is just wrong. But so too was the violence in retaliation. Another listener, Gareth from Navin, says, I support the people who were involved in the incident in Roscommon over the weekend. If the government don't look after the people, the people have to look after themselves. With baseball bats? No, the people that were evicted. Oh, right, yeah. Mm. That, uh, that if people don't look after mm. themselves. Are you sure now? Because they were evicted last Tuesday. The oh, well people then, over the weekend okay. are the gang of 20 fellas that arrived okay, with well baseball then, bats. You're, yeah. you're right then, Michael. Yeah. I'm just reading. Mm, I mm, wasn't speaking mm, to this mm. person now, so it was handed to me. So yeah. you're, you're right if, if he said over the weekend. Yeah, well, yes. I assume that's what he's saying. You know, yeah. and I think some people would uh, support uh, what happened. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing reports today that it's some sort of uh, dissident Republican group. And uh, there was a, a, a lot of fury over how one of the security guards uh, responded uh, to a fellow that was filming the thing when it was going on. And he was saying, shame on you. You know, you're doing that to a fellow Irish man. He said, mm. I'm not Irish, I'm British. Mm. And mm. that seemed to get up the backs of a lot of people. Well, this listener, um, and I'll just read out what he said, he's saying that if the government don't look after the people, the people have to look after themselves. Mm. That the new absentee landlords and banks that sell mortgages to the vulture funds should be boycotted themselves. Yeah, well, I don't know. David Hall wouldn't uh, allow us to suggest that he was supportive of that, and I'm sure that he's not. And he made it very clear that he's not supportive of uh, that type of vigilante response. But he was saying that it is inevitable that there'll be lots more of it. Well, we had another listener in touch, Margaret, and she says the eviction in Roscommon was disgraceful and heart backed to the landlord days of the Brits. But what I can't understand is why no one took to the streets in protest over what the banks did to this country in the same way they did over having to pay a few hundred quid a year for water. The banks lost billions on us. People lost their homes and we are still bailing them out. And they are doing what they want. Mm -hmm. Mary also phoned in to say that uh, it's not right that anybody should be involved in violence when it comes to people having to be evicted from their homes, but does not agree that anybody should fight back either. That's mm. similar to the earlier caller, mm. and says yeah, well, it's that very important to say the family didn't fight back. No, know, they were no, yeah. no. Mm-hmm. And she, the point that she's mm. making is that if this is done through the courts, can the guardy not help well, in trying to ensure mm. a peaceful? eviction if it has to happen. Yeah, well, the Guardi escorted the security firm and they oversaw the eviction. Uh, they were standing and it's very clearly visible on this film that somebody took on their phone. They're standing outside of uh, the house and they're looking at the security guards forcibly removing the residents uh, and uh, they were most certainly, there's no other way of putting it, they were mm. forcibly removing them. Uh, I'm not sure they were assaulting them. Uh, they were in headlocks uh, and so on. Uh, there was a lot of shouting uh, and uh, it was very uncomfortable to watch at best. It was awful to watch. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but, you know, there is many questions about the security firm uh, 
being allowed to do this or banks are allowed to use security firms to do this and that it should be done by the Gardaí if it has to happen at all and there is the time of year and all of that and there's no doubt about that. But if you don't pay your debts and then you're asked to leave and then you don't leave, uh, well then what happens next if you don't forcibly Mm -hmm. remove people? And uh, I suppose that's the uh, inevitable result if you're forcibly removing stuff. People, you're going to see stuff like that. Moving from that, Michael, if I can, to the name change of Our Lady of Lords Hospital. Mm. Jackie was in touch and asked, do we know what is the union's position on the name change for the hospital? He feels they're staying very quiet on it so far and felt you should have asked Paul Bell about it when you had him on. And Jackie mentioned, if we could just read out that there is a public meeting tonight in the West Court Hotel in Drogheda at 7pm for anybody who is against the name change. Okay. So we'll finish on that one, Michael. Right, thanks for that, Marie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Marie and Maggie are taking calls today and our telephone number is 1850 Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, uh, the Chief Executive of Hilleth County Council, John Martin, is offering to chair a group which would look at non-Garda-related issues relating to the ongoing feud between criminal gangs in Drogheda. We'll talk about this in a, a moment with Labour Party Councillor Pio Smith, who's come in to us uh, this morning. Uh, and thanks for doing so. Uh, you were to come in to us anyway because uh, you took issue with some of the things that were said on the programme yesterday uh, by fellow Councillor Kenneth Flood of the Sinn Féin party who's also the chair of the joint policing committee I did yeah uh, <clears throat> listening to the show yesterday morning uh, I was under the impression that Ken was trying to say that councils were trying to block him from doing certain things so for example bringing JPC meetings into housing estates that's a, a joint policing committee yeah. meeting yeah mm. Yeah, well, I, I asked him uh, directly uh, yeah. what he think about uh, calling for the meeting to be held in Moneymore yeah, well, this was discussed a couple mm. of years ago and it was discussed again recently. And I was one of the councillors that mm. said no to this proposal. Mm. And I did it for a number of reasons. I did it because I didn't think it was practical, number one, because uh, if you look at even this year, the number of uh, serious antisocial behaviour incidents that we had in Drogheda. So we had issues in Moneymore, Lawrence Park, Ballsgrove, Mullen, Finians, <clears throat> mm. Riverbank, Riverview. I could go on. There's about 20 I could, I could yep. name easily. Mm. So we have four meetings a year. It wouldn't be practical to bring them into the estates, number one. Number two, I have a fear of ghettoisation. I don't think we can actually categorise an area mm. and say, oh, this is where the antisocial behaviour takes place. Because then that creates a negative bias in terms of people who live outside of those areas. Mm. And it creates difficulties for people in those areas then who are going outside and applying for jobs, mm. etc., around the area. Uh, and there's no evidence from JPCs around the country that going into various estates actually decreases the amount of antisocial behaviour in those estates. Do you not think things have changed, though, because of recent events? And I understand the points you're making, and I think you make them very sincerely uh, and for all of the right reasons. Uh, but the answer to the problems that are being experienced in Drogheda lie in the community, do they not? They do lie in the community, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the problem too, Ken recently on your show said that he was the chair of a talking shop and if I was living in an estate where there was a lot of problems and I was having problems, mm. well, if that JPC meeting was going down, mm. I wouldn't go to it yeah. because once I hear somebody yeah, well, saying that, it's a talking shop. Do you think people go. are going to uh, walk up from Moneymore to Barlow House or wherever else uh, the JPC meeting is going to be held? <coughs> the answer is <coughs> most likely not and if they do, very few will. If you hold the meeting 
in the community, you'll see a great turnout. And there's no doubt about that. And you'll get the feedback from the people. No, well, I disagree with you there. I, when, you, when you're in a community that's really uh, bogged down in fear, mm. everyone is looking at everybody else. Mm. Nobody's going to walk into a, into a public meeting and start saying exactly No, what's maybe going not, on. but they'll not turn up and they'll know who to talk to and uh, relationships will develop. I don't think so many people will turn up as they would if it was held off-site. Because when it's held off-site, there's less eyes on the ground looking at who's going in. And, like, I've, I, there's a sense of paranoia that develops mm. around, r- around an area that's in fear. For example, when I spoke to somebody before, they were looking at the guards. They were looking at the body beha- uh, behaviour of the guards mm. uh, and when they were asking them questions to see were they interested in, in, in what was being said or were they not. They're, they're tuned in to fear. Mm. And having meetings in an area of intense fear is not necessarily going to actually uh, alleviate that fear in the individuals or make the situation better. I think having the meetings off-site, away from the actual uh, target Mm. areas, brings a sense of calm attached to it and gives people a sense of security that they can go there and maybe say something, but I'll make contacts with individuals who are at those meetings. Mm. But... Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. I, I, I don't know. If people aren't coming forward with the information, uh, is it worth looking at this again? I mean, I think the argument about ghettoising money more is long past. It's long being ghettoised and it has a, a national reputation now. It is the modern day equivalent of what Moy Ross was 10 years ago. Well, you see, I don't agree with that. And I mean, I've got but it family. Is. I, there's no, people, there's people I outside mean, of the town. That's your opinion. That's mm. fair enough. Mm. But like, I mean, I've got family and friends who live in Moy I mean, we've had a situation in Moneymore over the last couple of years where we had a number of people mm. who got fantastic leave and sad results. I'm not talking about you the know, people in Moneymore. No, 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 no. This is stuff that's not No, you're not hearing me properly. You see, I'm not talking about the people in Moneymore. Of course they don't believe mm. uh, that it's a terrible place or that their neighbours are terrible people. They know mm. who the terrible people are mm. and they're probably not too far away. But I'm talking about people, let's say, in Dublin or in mm. Cavan or in Cork. Mm. Uh, who have heard of uh, money more mm. and they talk about it like my Ross. Mm. That's the ghettoization. Yeah, so when you send out your CV with money more mm. on it, sorry, not interested. Yeah. And that's the problem, you yeah. see. It, it's the problem of not, but it's too not late. having a balanced approach to uh, reporting stuff that goes on, you see. This is the thing. When there's a very fearful event that takes place, mm. all of the national media are tuned in. Mm. But it misses a lot of the good stuff that's going on, like the stuff that goes on but in Connect House, like the cable yeah. project, mm. like the kids that are going to school, uh, the the, uh, the homework club. But of course you it know, does. All of that good but stuff that goes on. But of course it does. You've got to stop the yeah, bad you, stuff. Yeah, but we... Yeah, I mean, that's we, the reputation. You're getting the reputation because of the bad stuff because the bad stuff mm. is dreadfully scary. Mm. Okay. Take, for example, a couple of weeks back, there was uh, an incident on the Dublin Road. Now, Nobody would associate the Dublin Road, even though there's a, car, a possible mm. car bomb on the Dublin Road, mm. as being an area that there's significant antisocial behaviour going on. Mm. However, if you live up there and you see some of the stuff that is going on, mm. like uh, some of the uh, antisocial behaviour in the Dale area, the car bomb that was on the Dublin Road, mm. the graffiti on the roads, mm. the break-ins in, the hu- in some mm. of the houses up there, if that was being reported on a regular basis, yep. all of a sudden then the Dublin Road gets Of course, yeah. But what, reputation. But what you're hearing in Cavan, Dublin and Cork is two things repeat it. Mm. Drada, 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 mm. and money more, money more, money more. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're the two words that are repeated for people who aren't familiar with the area. So, of course, it sticks. Yeah, 
but I, I still come back to my original point that we need to actually fight against the bias. Mm. We need to have a balanced report and structure. And like, you know, draw the, hit the headlines during the summer for all the right reasons. Mm. And then we're hitting the headlines for all the wrong reasons in the last couple of weeks, couple of months. Mm. Uh, but that's the problem. Fear sinks deeply into people's consciousness. And all of the good stuff doesn't sink as deep mm. as fear does. Yeah. So we need to actually kind of balance it out in terms of what we say. And the, 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 the real problem, I suppose, or the long-term problem is the reputational damage because mm. it'll take longer to uh, clear up the reputation damage uh, than it will to clear up the gangs and the problems associated with the gangs. Yeah, it does. And mm. this is the issue too. Uh, like all of this stuff that's happening around our town at the minute, this is 20 years, maybe more in, mm. in, in, in the making, you know. And like David Soren, in fairness to him, uh, the Sinn Féin Council asked a question at the JPC meeting last week. How has it come to this? Mm. You know, and yeah, it's come to this for a lot of different reasons. Uh, it's come to this because we've had recessions down the, through the years, we've had cutbacks down through the years, uh, we haven't had a roy on the ball down through the years, and it's a collective responsibility. It isn't just one person or one organisation that gets the blame for this. I mean, we as a society have to put our hands up and say, "Well, I have a part to play in," mm. uh, and I failed to some extent, uh, but we can't keep failing. We need to actually reflect on it, see what we did wrong. And now we need to do something right over a long period of time in order to make it better and, and to change that reputation that you're talking mm. about. But we also need to act in the short term. We need to protect people. People <coughs> uh, at least need to feel safe uh, because regardless of how safe they are or are not, they don't feel safe. No, they don't. And, and, and you see, they're not going to feel safe in, in, in the short term. I mean, the first thing that we have to do here is the policing approach. The policing approach <coughs> has got to pave the way for what's going to come next. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, and what about the approach uh, in terms of policing from January? Uh, and Canon Flood telling us uh, that the eighteen additional guardi are going to be reduced to three. I think he said. Yeah, that's what the mm. chief uh, superintendent said on on Thursday night at the meeting. And again, like this is this is what we're talking about. I mean, I was I was downtown over the weekend, and the amount of people, and this was remarked at JPC meeting on tours tonight, that was saying, "Isn't it great to see so many guards walking around town?" Blah blah mm. blah. A sense of security, a sense that you know there is a response to this issue. Mm. And then we're informed that of the eighteen new guards that came, we're going to keep three of them. Like, how do you actually build a community policing unit? Mm. And this is not the fault now of the superintendent or the chief superintendent. Mm. You know this. In fairness to Fergus O'Dowd, he's been doing a lot of hard work on the ground in relation to trying to get resources for the town in, in this issue. Charlie Flanagan needs to actually make the decision because when uh, Deputy O'Dowd asked the question in the doll, uh, the tonisher said, wherever you need and draw, you will get. Well, we need those 18 guards. Like That was said quite clearly at the JPC meeting last week. We need the 18 guards to stay mm-hmm. in this town. We need them. Uh, and you talk about that presence, feet on the street uh, and uh, blue shirts walking up and down the street uh, and uh, there's something else missing, isn't there? I mean, where uh, the alcoholic uh, uh, behaviours that we've seen, there's a number of people uh, who are quite visible uh, normally speaking on the streets of Drogheda uh, who suffer Mm -hmm. addiction problems or mental health problems or something like that uh, but they're not to be seen. No, I think there was a, an approach taken to start moving people away from the town centre mm. areas. And uh, th- there was a, a study done in, in, in inner city Dublin there about two or three years ago, a small area policing, where they they actually mapped out the areas in terms of 50 units up to 200 units, and they allocated community policing uh, to those areas. And mm. then they started gradually moving uh, drug users or mm. dealers 
or people suffering from various ailments away from the populated areas <clears throat> to get footfall back in the town centre mm. and the city centre as it was in Dublin. And I think a similar approach has been tried here. Uh, and if the silver lining of this cloud exists, it's uh, that you don't have to walk over people on lying asleep on the pavement in the middle of Drogheda every single afternoon. Yeah, well, I suppose that's one way of looking at it. I mean, uh, when I see people who are struggling that way, mm. I mean, they didn't come into this life to choose that life. I mean, No, some, of course you know, not. No, of course uh, not. No, yeah. but they're being neglected mm. uh, uh, as well as the problems that yeah. they're causing. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And, and and again, it comes back to the old old word. It, it's, it's a cliche at this stage. Mm. It's resources and and doing something for, for for people in this regard and making sure that younger people are coming up because this is a problem in the town. We've yeah. got 12, 13, 14-year-olds who are in real, real danger of taking the next step into uh, into crime. And when they hit, say, mid to late teens, it could be too late for a lot of them. Mm. And the problem that I fear is that each generation that comes, they seem to, there seems to be a viciousness or a callousness that probably wasn't there in the previous generations. Mm. And some of the stories that I'm picking up now <coughs> over the last 12 months in Drada, uh, and I've spoken to you about it mm. before, is quite mm. shocking. Mm. And certainly there are stories that I wouldn't have heard when I was growing up in the 70s or the 80s that people, people were doing to each other. Mm. And uh, so I would fear then if we don't get a handle on stuff now, what the future holds for well, us. Well, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and I mean, you just have to look at other places uh, that have had problems of this sort and that's exactly what's happened and it gets fiercer by the generation. Yeah, it does. And, and, and that's why, in fairness to Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan, he, he made it quite clear the other night at JPC meeting, this is not an issue for the guards alone. This is an issue for us as a society and as a community. And as you said rightly earlier on, we have to build up a sense of confidence in the community that they have a part to play in creating the type of society they want for their children and their grandchildren. And we have to remove the silence because silence is the killer in terms of when there's intimidation going on. Mm. But we need to be able to give people confidence. We need, we need to be able to support them. And that involves a multi-agency approach with the guards, the council. And this is the, what the chief executive is talking about. And this is what the chief executive is talking about. Myself, Paul Bell and Jed Nash uh, met last Friday. <clears throat> and uh, the Low County Council is going to be the body that will pull together all these different agencies in the hope that we can actually develop an action plan that can be implemented not just in the next couple of months but over the next couple of years and we need to review it on a regular basis and that's where the JPCs come in because they have an important role to play in ensuring that any action plan that does or is developed is actually implemented and that's the role of all of us as councillors and we should be held accountable if we fail in this one. Okay, we'll leave it on that note and thank you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning. That's Labour Party Councillor P.O. Smith. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. And we'll take a, another look at uh, a different aspect uh, from uh, that survey from uh, the CSO that we were speaking about uh, earlier on in the programme, the Income and Living Conditions Survey, which has found some 760,000 people in this country living in poverty. 230,000 of those are children. A fifth of all children are living below the poverty line.
decline in this country. And it's also found that one-parent families are five times as likely than two-parent households to live in consistent poverty. We're joined by Karen Kiernan of uh, the One Family Group. Good morning to you, Karen, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Good morning. We were talking earlier on, as I said, uh, about uh, the situation that people find themselves in and how... Uh, it may look to some as though it was written by Charles Dickens. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it, the levels of poverty that we still see in this country. And it's when this Silk Report comes out, because across Europe, it's done every year, every country is compared. So it's really strong empirical data. And what you see all the time, unfortunately, is that the gap between those in Ireland who have means and those who do not have means keeps widening. And unfortunately, we're seeing that gap widen even more for last year um, for people who are living on their own with children. So for people who are parenting on their own, Mm. they're at um, much higher levels of consistent poverty, at risk poverty and deprivation, as you've said. So this is shocking. And we also know that most of the poor children in Ireland live in one parent families. So there is a chronic problem here that unfortunately the government knows about because it's well documented every year. There's been a lot of research done about what's needed, but we just haven't yet seen the kind of supports and investments that are needed to help these children and these parents live their lives with mm. dignity. But isn't it odd at the same time how most of us uh, appear to be doing better, that the disposable income of uh, the average household increased by 5% to €48,476. Yeah, so what we're seeing is that there has been increases for some, and that's very welcome. We've seen that the economy has started to move and investments in services have started to go in in the country, but we haven't seen it lift everybody. And so some of the big structural problems that many families have in terms of accommodation, childcare, work-friendly practices, all of those barriers are even bigger for people who are parenting on their own. So they're not getting the lift because the structural, the big barriers are not yet addressed. So whilst we're seeing some investment now in early years and childcare, which is really, really welcome, we actually need to see a lot more because we're still investing a lot less than other countries. So in order for people to be able to do as well um, as those who are able to have, say, two full-time jobs in a family, um, they need some support because someone who's parenting on their own will never be able to afford all the accommodation and childcare costs. It's hard enough for people who have two incomes going into a family, never mind where there's only one income. So there has to be more done um, to help everybody do well and not just people who are able to earn a lot of money. Mm, accommodation, childcare, the day-to-day cost of living uh, is obviously a challenge for many people given their income levels. But we're looking at a, a very expensive time of the year as well, of course, right now. Oh, well, look, there was an article in a paper the other day saying there are parents going hungry in order to try and buy toys for Christmas. I mean, that's just shocking and it's really sad. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of people who also want to help. And, you know, in terms of goodwill, our own organisation, One Family, has been able to take in hundreds of toys from donors and distribute them to families. But it's not really the way you'd hope it to be. Mm. I think for many people, they don't realise the chronic day in, day out um, kind of... the things that people find difficult to pay for, like heating, like food, like education, like school trips with their children. There are basic things in a, a new winter coat. And these kind of deprivation indicators have also been looked at in the research across Europe. And we're seeing again that people who are parenting on their own have higher levels of deprivation, as do their children. 
So there's something about enabling people to get the level of education they need, to get uh, jobs that will help them also parent, mm. help get their children minded, so that people can participate in society, earn the incomes that they want, and able to live in dignity. Because yeah, and when you're you, well, now leaving children behind, which is really, mm. it's going to be hard for them their whole lives if they are, if they are deprived when they're young. Impossible to live in dignity uh, when you're in deprivation and uh, that means uh, that you can't keep the heat on or the light on or eat meat uh, or warm meals or have a heavy overcoat or a good pair of shoes as the case may be. These things uh, that uh, indicate uh, that you are in deprivation if you're short of two of them at any given time and uh, the amount of people who find themselves in that position is truly shocking at almost 19% uh, and many of them children as we've been hearing 4,000 children or thereabouts uh, who don't have a place to call home going into Christmas as well uh, another shocking statistic Yeah and unfortunately 60% of families who are homeless um, that's parents. primarily in big yeah. cities mm. but um 60% of those are again mums, one or two children. Um, and a huge amount of them are growing up uh, in emergency accommodation, hotels, B&Bs or hubs. And it, it's not good. They don't have anywhere to play. They may, they're not able to cook healthy food. It is costing them a lot of money. It's costing the state a lot of money. So, look, we, we know a lot of the difficulties for people who are living in homeless accommodation. But for children, because we work with some of them in one family, mm. and it is really difficult. It is a daily grind for people to try and live and raise their children and get their children to school and give their children the stability that they need, um, as well as support them emotionally when they're living under that kind of stress. It's just horrendous. Um, so anything that, that can be done to invest in good long-term services for people in this country is really what we need to lift everybody up and not just those who are able to earn enough to lift themselves up. Okay, Karen. Look, thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to speak to us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. Karen Kiernan is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the One Family organisation that works with One Parent Families. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to the phones and some more of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. You've had a a fairly busy morning, I think, Marie. We really have, Michael, and tried to get through some more of the comments. A lot of people reacting to the situation in Roscommon. What happened in Roscommon is the only way to treat someone who wants to work for these vulture funds, says a texter. Tony from County Loud says, Michael, it's quite... <laughs> That's the only way to, to to attack them with baseball bats. That's I'm reading out the text. OK, all right. Tony Maybe we should pass on that telephone number to somebody. I don't know. That's a very odd thing to say, is it not? It is. It is an I odd thing. I mean, there were thing. three people in hospital. They, they killed a dog. They destroyed these vehicles. Uh, you saw them on television, burnt out. Uh, vans and cars, the house is destroyed. I don't know if that's the only way to behave, is it? Well, obviously, this texter feels Mm. that that's the way to behave. Uh, Obviously, feels most sympathy must lie with the people who were evicted. Mm. But does, does, you know, should an incident like that be responded with, you know, with violence? I don't think that's the answer myself. Yeah, uh, and, but uh, yeah, the loan provider is KBC Bank, as I understand it is from the reports. Uh, so it's not one of the vulture funds. Uh, but uh, I don't know if uh, that's uh, the kind of country that 
I'd like my children to live in, let alone myself. Well, you'd wonder where it would all end up, mm, Michael, if that's, yeah. if that's what is ahead of us. Mm. And you would be frightened listening to David Hall this morning mm. in, in the sense of what's to come down the line. Yeah. But we had a phone call um, from Joanne who says that she's very angry, Michael, at the way that these people were treated, that your sympathy seems to lie with the security people, as this listener puts it, right. who were attacked, but you don't seem to have much sympathy for those who were evicted from their home. Mm. Uh, well, I, I don't know about uh, the people who were evicted from their home, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure, uh, you know, why I would think that the court order was wrong. Uh, as the Taoiseach said, there's a court order there uh, and um, the judge would have listened to all of the sides in the case. Uh, and this is the way the Taoiseach argued it quite well, I'd have thought. Uh, but regardless of that, no matter... What you think of it, I don't think that you respond with baseball bats. Tony from County Loud says it was quite obvious from the ramble on of David Hall that he was not prepared to clearly condemn the attack on a lawful security firm on Saturday night, Sunday morning. And he feels that many other uh, people would feel the same way. Mm. And he feels that Mr Hall has questions to answer with regard to comments he made um, leading up to this. Uh, you know, in the mainstream media. And he says he spent uh, the rest of the interview trying to justify this action. And he says uh, Mr Hall defends people who do not engage with banks uh, over eight to ten years and expect to be left in properties not paid for. This country remains well behind in enforcing repossessions through this whole whole period. And part of this Mm. is the fault of courts and politicians trying to be popular, just like Mr Hall. All right, well, David Hall did say uh, that he he condemned uh, the attack on uh, the security guards uh, and uh, that he repeated that and he wasn't sure why I kept asking him if he uh, was uh, against that type of behaviour and that he had never said that it was justifiable, but what he had said was uh, that it was inevitable and that uh, the more evictions there are like this... uh, that as sure as night follows day you're going to see more of that type of behaviour Tommy phoned in and Tommy says that most people in Ireland are against evictions and it probably has a lot to do with our history but he says at the same time if people don't pay what they owe Mm. well then what options are there that people have to try and pay he doesn't know all Mm. the circumstances in this case he feels that if those at the centre of this eviction were trying to pay back Mm. or were trying to pay the mortgage well then they should have been shown a more sympathetic approach Mm. Uh, but says that if people are blatantly and that's the, mm. you know, mm. the, the point he's making, that if people blatantly don't pay, mm. well, you can't expect them then to live in a house that they're not paying for. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's uh, what the court looks at. Uh, and uh, the court will weigh up whether there is uh, a genuine effort or ability, because uh, quite often people will try to pay back their mortgage, mortgage, but they haven't got the ability to pay it back. Uh, and if uh, that's the view of the court, they'll issue a, a, an order which will see the residents uh, evicted and the property repossessed. 
And that's what happened in this instance, by all accounts. Uh, the security firm were there on foot of uh, a court order. Yes. They were escorted by Angarda Shiakana. Uh, and then what happened, happened. As I said earlier on, and I repeated, it was an awful thing to, to see. Uh, I don't and is there a need for the balaclavas and black clothing and that kind of thing, Michael? By whom? By anyone involved in that kind of activity. Well, if you're coming to beat people up with baseball bats, I'm sure you'd be well advised to wear a balaclava so that you can't be identified afterwards. Uh, the security... Wrongdoing, yes, yeah, I, the, I see what the, you're the, saying, the, yeah. that, that, The balaclavas were worn by the fellows who arrived at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the, the dissident Republicans, uh, as uh, some reports are, are suggesting, uh, whether it was the continuity IRA or the real IRA or a, a gang of hoodlums uh, who decided that... They could act in this way. Whoever they were, they wore balaclavas. Okay. They came along in the middle of the night. A very, very organised thing. Apparently, uh, they uh, drove up in trucks and left bales of hay in the middle of the road so that people couldn't get to them. The, the, the guards couldn't get to them. Uh, they knew that the security guards were there. No lights in this area. They arrived in the dead of night. Right. Okay. Baseball bats uh, pushed in the door, broke the door down, uh, assaulted uh eight fellas, yes. three of them in hospital, uh, one of them very serious, the dog dead, uh, and all these vehicles set alight and all that sort of stuff. A very, very serious thing. Uh, the security guards were in black uniforms yes. uh, and our, uh, their faces were completely visible. You can, okay, see, you can see that. No, Frank just yeah. got mm-hmm. in touch mm-hmm. to say that he felt that it was a bit too much when he heard of dark clothing mm-hmm. and balaclavas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that clears mm-hmm. it up. The security uh, yeah. men were wearing black, the, the, the black, black clothing black, black, but were visible. Black jackets and black yeah. trousers yeah. yes yeah. but mm-hmm. it was the re- the ones that retaliated that mm. were covered up yeah that you exactly. couldn't yeah. see who yeah. they were yeah. yeah and I don't blame them I and mean, we did have that incident uh, not too long ago where Gardaí were wearing balaclavas yes. removing uh, squatters from a house in Dublin yeah. that's right mm-hmm. Um, Declan was in li- listening to your interview there mm. with Karen from uh, One Family mm. and says that he feels that there are many supports for one parent families but not as much for couples with children who may be working but are on low incomes mm. and thinks that this should be looked at. Yeah. Uh, I know I know what he means but the facts speak for themselves. Uh, the one parent families are at more risk of poverty. Denise says there are more people working in this country than there has been in many years. So it's hard to understand why there is still so much poverty. Mm. She wonders, is it because of low wages and perhaps there should be uh, a bigger campaign to increase the minimum age, wage mm. even more substantially. Yeah, and uh, you know, that's a, an argument uh, as well that you could have all day. Increase the minimum wage and increase the price of bread you know, and everything yes. else along with it so the more money you're taking home from your job pays for less uh, and uh, uh, deflates the value of it completely. Anne says that she's shocked listening uh, to your guests in relation to uh, the situation regarding so many people being in poverty in Ireland mm. and says that her fears are that if it is a hard Brexit, that even more people are going to suffer in Ireland next year. OK. Can I move on then, if I can, to yep. just interview with uh, Councillor Peel Smith. Mm. Mary says that she agrees with Peel that we need to retrain the extra guardie once the current feud dies down. Having extra guards could be an extra deterrent against crime in the years going forward. We need all the help we can get at this stage. OK. Tom thinks Michael is being a bit overdramatic when he compares money more to Moiros. We are not quite at that level just yet, 
says Tom. Mm. Michael seems to be only keen to make that connection, the only one keen to make that connection. Mm. And Tom feels it's a little unfair on the people living in the estate. It's like every estate around the country, 95% of the people living there are decent, mm. hardworking people and it's the same few who are giving the whole area a bad name. Yeah, well I agree with the last part of that 100%, yeah. Okay, finally, I'll just go back to your interview with Sean Healy because Jimmy was listening in and he was shocked that there are so many in this country living in deprivation. The government of today should hang their heads in shame at this fact. They are failing the people of the country on a massive scale and they are are being let away with it. They're heading off on their long Christmas break now and all around the country there are people living in emergency accommodation and struggling to make ends meet. Shame on our public reps. All right, but does anybody know? Because most of us have seen an increase in our disposable income of 5%. We leave right. it there for the moment. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. And if you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, 1850 is our telephone number. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Paul Connolly of Dundalk Station joins us for the report this week. And we begin in Drogheda, where Garda are investigating a petrol bomb attack. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, first thing um, <coughs> sorry, we have this morning was on last Thursday, the 13th of December, at 12.15am, so just after midnight, a house was petrol-bombed at Lawrence's Park in Drogheda. Two males were seen in the area, one in a black hoodie and the other with a grey hoodie. Now, a brick was first thrown through the, the window of the house and then a suspected petrol-bomb was lit and thrown in through the broken window, setting the sitting room on fire. Um, thankfully, nobody was injured. No occupants of the house were injured, but extensive damage done to the house and smoke damage um, also. So just appeal to anyone in around the Lawrence's Park area, just after midnight on last Thursday morning, um, 13th of December, if they've seen anyone in the area acting suspicious, these two meals, one in a black hoodie, one in a grey hoodie, or indeed, if you're, if you're in these areas and you see anything suspicious whatsoever, um, lift the phone to the guards in Drogheda, let them go out, check it mm. out. Maybe it's nothing, hopefully if it's nothing, but you might be preventing an attack on someone's house. Last Thursday was a, a very busy night for Angarda Shiakana in Drogheda. Indeed, it was a busy night for the fire service. Uh, and on that note, uh, we'll report on uh, another petrol bomb attack and another appeal from Angarda to people who might have information about it. Yeah, again on Thursday, the 13th of December. This time it was at half 11 um, that night. Damage was caused to a house in Moneymore in Drogheda. Now, the guards were out patrolling the area when they observed a number of people. They were actually putting out the fire, fighting the fire at the front of a house in Moneymore. A petrol bomb had been, had been used to light the porch of the house. Now, there was extensive damage caused to the porch. Um, also, at the, ta- at the same time, there was an attempt to burn out a porta cabin shop unit in Moneymore by throwing a petrol bomb underneath this unit and the fire was extinguished. Again, just appeal to anybody in around the area, if you've seen anything or know anything, lift the phone to the guard, the guards in Drogheda or also you have the confidential phone line which is 1800 one. We'll go to Ashburn in County Mead for our next report uh, where a house has been broken into. Yeah, there was a burglary to a house at Milton Estate in Ashburn on Wednesday last the 12th of December between 8pm and 8.35pm so roughly a half an hour gap there. Owner arrived home and he could actually see a male inside his house. Now this male ran towards the back door and exited the house 
the owner of the house went out to the back lane and observed a number of males fleeing the area along the back lane. Now, um, entry was gained by forcing the back door and window and rooms ransacked. So anyone in around the Milltown estate area of Ashbourne, if you've seen these males hanging around the area, around the back lane, lift the phone to Ashbourne Garda Station. Okay, and uh, we'll conclude with uh, an appeal for people to be careful and uh, to think of safety when they're out and about this Christmas. Yeah, just a a wee bit of road safety uh, for, for the coming week. Michael, people be out socialising, um, enjoying themselves. Simple wee things we can all do. First of all, if you're driving, do not drink and drive. You run the risk of, God forbid, having an accident or getting stopped by the guardie and going to court and losing your licence. But simple things we, we should do every day. Get into the car, put on your seatbelt. If there, if you have kids in the car, other occupants, make sure they're wearing their seatbelt. Ease off on the right foot. Speed kills. Take it easy. Drive for the conditions of the road. Like I was coming to work this morning, and the rain and wind on the roadway was desperate. Um, you have to drive for the conditions of the road. Pedestrians, unfortunately, there's been 39 pedestrians killed, lost their lives on the roads this year so far. Plan your night out. If you're heading out for the night, make sure you have a plan to get home, whether that is a taxi or a lift home. And if you are walking the roads, make sure you're well lit up. Yellow jackets, torches. Um, make sure you're visible to motorists. And last thing, Michael, just like to wish yourself and your listeners a happy, peaceful Christmas and let's all have a safe one. All right, and many happy returns and thank you indeed. Garda Paul Connolly of Dundalk Garda Station will return to the Garda Crime Desk in the new year, but that being the last report of uh, this year and indeed that being my last programme of this year. So I'd like to thank anybody who's spoken to us on the programme over the course of the year, all of the crew who've worked very hard on the programme over the course of the last year and to anybody who's listened over the course of the last year. We have full programmes for the rest of the week I have to say and Cahill Dervin will be here tomorrow morning with our next programme at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, happy Christmas, bye bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie